Assalamu alaikum. Egypt is not just the land of pharaohs and belly dancers. American historian John Henry Clark says, Egypt gave birth to what later would become known as the Western civilization and long before the greatness of Greece and Rome. That is indeed true. Greece, Italy, Egypt and Turkey are naturals to each other. In many ways, their histories are integrated and their cultures have influenced each other over millennia. Any serious traveler who has explored one of these lands is automatically inspired to visit the others. And so it has been for me. Borrowing from Robert Frost, I say, I have miles to fly, books to read, countries to visit and sights to see. Welcome back to a new season of the Global Nomad Podcast. I am Dan Mayur. In these podcasts, I bring to you the experiences and impressions of my travels, giving you a new perspective on this fascinating world of ours. If you miss something, you can always skip back and listen again. These podcasts are based on my books, Global Nomad and The Four L's, where a lot more interesting information awaits you. We are truly blessed. We live in a marvelous world full of art and music, sculpture and architecture, and science and technology, all products of human creativity. Human civilization is defined by the body of this collective knowledge. Together with the Indus Valley, Greece and China, Egypt has been a cradle of the great civilizations of the world. The many achievements of the ancient Egyptians include designing and constructing massive pyramids, temples and obelisks some 4000 years ago. They knew then advanced mathematics and medicine, irrigation systems and agricultural production techniques. Egyptian art and architecture have been widely copied and carried to far corners of the world. Its monumental ruins have inspired the imagination of travelers and writers for centuries. Iconic sites of the Giza necropolis and its great sphinx, as well as the ruins of Luxor, Karnak and the Valley of the Kings in the south and Alexandria in the north, reflect this legacy. This long and rich cultural heritage is an integral part of Egypt's national identity today. And then there are other attractions, like the remains of King Tut at the Egyptian Museum near the famed Tahrir Square, mouth-watering shawarma and falafel in Cairo's ubiquitous coffee houses, Nile cruises with dinner and music, and of course, belly dancing shows. Our taxi driver, eager to arrange show tickets for us, said, How about a belly dancing show tonight, sir? You know it is not Egypt without belly dancing. Yes, indeed. It is not Egypt without belly dancing. That may be. But come with me first to two of my favorite cities in Egypt, 
Luxor and Alexandria. The Taj Mahal, completed in the year 1653, is the crown jewel in India's treasure of great historical sites. If I had to see just a single site in India, it would undoubtedly be the Taj Mahal, and so it is with Luxor in Egypt. According to some historians, two-thirds of the world's great archaeological sites are in Egypt, and half of them are in and around the beautiful city of Luxor on the Nile in the southern part of the country. My Greek, Italian, and Indian friends may challenge these figures, but the fact remains that Luxor and its vicinity make the world's largest open-air museum of the most magnificent monuments that man has ever created. The Taj Mahal is 350 years old. Luxor goes back to 3500 years. The Taj Mahal mesmerizes you with its delicate artistic marble carvings and intricate inlays. Luxor overwhelms you with the sheer size of its massive stone columns, pylons and obelisks. Taj Mahal is pure beauty. Luxor is solid bronze. Taj Mahal is sex goddess Aphrodite. Luxor is the muscle man Hercules. The best way to enjoy the area is to take the hour-long early morning flight from Cairo to Luxor or Aswan and then take a cruise down the Nile visiting several points of interest along the way. While the pharaohs and kings of the bygone era have just about vanished all over the world now, the longing for luxury life remains in the minds of most people. In today's world of great income disparity, that desire is satisfied at least temporarily in the oases of affluence like exclusive country clubs, five-star hotels and cruise ships. Whether they are ocean-going large vessels or smaller ships suitable for rivers like the Nile, cruise operators go out of their way to feed, entertain and pamper you in every possible way to make it a luxury experience. We landed at the Luxor airport under the pleasantly warm Egyptian sun. March is a good month to travel here. The desert air gets unbearably hot after that. In a new place, it is always nice to see your name, handwritten on a little signboard held high by somebody eagerly awaiting you in the arrival area of the airport. Since my childhood, I have thought that you had to be somebody particularly important to be received like that. I always longed for it. Of course, in my corporate life, later, I often enjoyed that privilege. So it was a joy and a big relief to see Mahmood, the same guide who had taken us to the pyramids last week, welcoming us with that coveted sign, the name Dan Mayur loudly screaming on it. There are two essential things for a visit to place like Luxor. First, you must be well rested. The umpteen monuments here are spread out over large areas and you could easily put in 
eight or ten miles walking in a day just sightseeing. The second and perhaps more important thing is to get a good qualified and English speaking guide. There is history all around you and every building, every relic, every stone here wants to talk to you. It has a story to tell. Somebody needs to interpret those stories for you. With 32 dynasties and several pharaohs in each, real and mythological stories of innumerable deities and humans, multiple Ramesses and Cleopatras, the 5,000-year-old Egyptian history is extremely complex and hard to remember. A local expert can help unravel some of that, focus on only the most important facts and make the experience enjoyable. Mahmood did just that for us. He is a proud and knowledgeable Egyptian. He is fluent in Polish and Russian because there has been a lot of Russian influence here, especially since the construction of the Aswan Dam in the 1960s. The Russians helped with it and provided a lot of employment to the locals. Mahmood is a genuine chatterbox. In addition to the monuments, he talked a lot about the world and Egypt today, of politics and people, of the economy and the tourists. He said he loved America but hated Trump, and he would not talk about the Egyptian president, General Sisi. Only 40-something, but a father of five, Mahmood is a devout Muslim. He said the life of an average Egyptian here was hard with a monthly income of only about $300. One reason is the lack of female education and their almost total absence in the workforce. The overall literacy rate here is at a stunningly low 40%. In perfect English, he said, quite matter-of-factly, that neither his parents nor his wife can read or write. How do civilizations that were once so rich and advanced in the arts and sciences come to this point? A point, it seems to me, of planned and imposed ignorance. As the conversation continued, before we realized it, we had arrived at the Valley of the Kings, our first stop. The Nile divides the city of Luxor into two distinct halves. The east bank is the city of the living, where the great temples of Luxor and Karnak are located. The west bank is the city of the dead, a large necropolis with its royal burial places located underground in the Valley of the King and in the Valley of the Queens. The striking thing here is the topography and the terrain of totally barren, undulating sandy hills and sharp cliffs all hiding deep in their bowels, well-preserved tombs. Some tombs have ornate decorations and colorful hieroglyphics that document the pharaoh's history in detail. The highlight here is the tomb of King Tutankhamun, which was discovered accidentally by British archaeologist Howard Carter in 1922. The underground tombs 
came into being after the pyramids became passé. They were too visible, open to looting and vandalizing, so the hidden tombs. Ancient Egypt was no place for women's equality. Neither is modern Egypt, of course. The burial places of men and women, kings and queens, were separated. Those for men were evidently much bigger and showier, and those for women were less conspicuous. Like at the three great pyramids of Giza, behind which there are six much smaller pyramids for the queens and their children. The larger pyramids were only for men. Not too far from the Valley of the Kings is a majestic monument, the Temple of Hatshepsut, the only female pharaoh in Egyptian history. A powerful ruler, she dressed and acted like a man. She must have been the pioneering member of the LGBTQ movement of the era. Beneath the sheer rugged cliffs of a mountain, the Temple of Hatshepsut symbolizes an extraordinary reign in Egyptian history. Step platforms, pillared porticos, and vibrant reliefs make it one of the most striking architectural masterpieces in the world. Hatshepsut became the queen during the 18th dynasty after the death of her husband. She adopted the title of pharaoh and ruled for more than 20 years. A statue depicts her with a lion's mane and pharaoh's beard. She has a male body in full regalia, a kilt and a headcloth. The evidence of her achievements can be seen even today all around Luxor. She erected towering obelisks and built roads in honor of Amun, king of gods and patron of the pharaohs. Her temple, known as the Holy of Holies, is decorated with scenes from her reign and houses images of Egyptian gods. She died in 1458 BC and was buried in the Valley of the Kings. After her death, her stepson carried out a sweeping campaign to destroy her legacy by crushing her statues and defacing her images. The Temple of Karnak is the largest religious structure ever constructed by man. Karnak means the most selected of places. It was the main center for the worship of god Amun-Ra. Built over several centuries during the reign of 30 different pharaohs beginning in 2055 BC, this huge complex features a seemingly endless series of courts, halls, statues and a sacred lake. There are a number of temples, colossal pylons, gigantic pillars, towering columns, long avenues of sphinxes and a 300-ton obelisk that stands some 97 feet tall. Its size simply overwhelms you. The most impressive part of Karnak is the hypostyle hall, 54,000 square feet in area. It is large enough for the Cathedral of Notre Dame to fit in it easily. Its 134 massive columns arranged in 16 rows are over 9 feet in diameter, 35 to 60, 65 feet tall and weigh hundreds of tons. These columns were not built to support anything in particular. But I think they are so massive 
that they could conceivably support the weight of the whole earth. An overriding thought lingers in my mind. How did they do this incredible construction? The mining of the gigantic stones, the transportation, the lifting and erection, all in the absence of heavy equipment we have today. No cranes, no trains, no trucks and no computers. How was that done? One thing for sure, whether lifting a hundred ton stone or landing on the moon, the indomitable human spirit knows no barriers. There are no limits to man's imagination and great things come only through imagination. You have to dream and visualize them first. The columns were built so tall and mighty as an offering to God Amun. Wandering totally dazed amidst these columns of the hypostyle, the most awe-inspiring room in the world, it was a daunting experience for me. But a thought came to mind. This is an ideal place for Indian movie actors to do their silly hide-and-seek song and dance sequences. They wiggle their rear ends in front of every monument in the world, from Eiffel Tower to the Sydney Opera House. Why not here, I thought. Is Bollywood listening? As we stepped out of the temple of Karnak, half stupefied, it was already dark outside. We were tired and ready to retire to the hotel when Mahmood said, Yalla, on to the temple of Luxor now, Mr. Dan. You are listening to a Global Nomad podcast. I am Dan Mayur. Recognizing that I was a little confused and not terribly enthusiastic at that point, after a long day of walking, he simply smiled but said nothing. He had planned it that way. A 10-minute drive and we were right at the middle of downtown Luxor, staring at the sight of a lifetime, a vast matrix of the gigantic columns of the Temple of Luxor, all beautifully illuminated to create a fairyland palace. It was unreal, fantabulous, a dream. The place was crowded with people, wall to wall, a congregation that seemed like a million strong. Obviously, they knew what I did not. The time to see the Temple of Luxor is after nightfall, in the dark. It is totally surreal then. At the entrance is a monumental gateway constructed by Ramesses II almost 3300 years ago. He is also known as Ramesses the Great, husband of the beautiful Nefertari and the most important of the pharaohs. Two gigantic obelisks once stood here. Only one remains now. I have seen the other at the Place de la Concorde in Paris. I love Paris, but I don't like the idea of the stolen Egyptian obelisk being there. Former colonial powers like England and France have stocked their museums with works of art looted from ancient lands like India, Egypt and Greece. These pieces rightfully belong to the host nations. They all must be returned under the auspices of the United Nations so that the locals can enjoy their heritage. 
Alexandria has always had a special appeal to me because of its name. Certain things, events or people leave an indelible impression in your mind. Three people, fictional or real, have permanently enamored me. Robin Hood, Sherlock Holmes and Alexander the Great. Young Alexander, the greatest warrior of all time, was said to be worried that his father Philip II would capture the whole world leaving nothing for him to conquer. Alexander was strong, brave, handsome and a winner. So I had to see Alexandria, the city he established in 330 before Christ during his triumphant march to take over the world. The multi-lane American-style highway from Giza to Alexandria reminded me of the trafficless stretch of Interstate 10 in West Texas. The 220-kilometer span through the open desert where all you see is sand, sand and more sand and no people up to the horizon is deeply reminiscent of the dry and arid parts of Texas or Arizona. There is no sand there, but the soil is the same yellowish pale brown in color and supports virtually no vegetation. Alexandria, with its 5 million inhabitants, is the second largest city in Egypt and a major industrial, economic, educational, shipping and trading center. Thanks to Alexander, the city became an important center of Hellenistic civilization. After his death, the Greek occupation of Alexandria lasted 300 years until the start of Cleopatra's reign. I was surprised to find that in Egyptian history, there are many Cleopatras. The proper name of the one we know from the Elizabeth Taylor Richard Burton movie is Cleopatra VII Philopator. She was a descendant of Ptolemy Soter, a Greek general and a companion of Alexander. She formed alliances with Roman leaders to keep them from occupying Egypt. Legend has it that she took her life when she felt her efforts were about to fail and the Roman invasion was imminent. This sounds like a Rajput woman committing Johar. I am sure Cleopatra was no Rajput woman and she must have her own reasons to do what she did. After her death, Egypt became a province of the Roman Empire. Alexandria remained the capital of Egypt for almost 1000 years until the Muslims came in the 7th century and a new capital was founded near Cairo. During this period, Alexandria was the second most powerful city after Rome. Over the years, Alexandria has had its share of the first and the biggest. It was best known for its lighthouse and its necropolis, both considered among the seven wonders of the Middle Ages. Most important, it was famous for its great library, the biggest in the world then. The details of Cleopatra's palace and its demise are fascinating. A few centuries after her death, 1400 years ago, a devastating earthquake and a huge tsunami hit Alexandria, sinking Cleopatra's palace, destroying and scattering its parts under 30 feet of water offshore. As I visualize the havoc, the stories of the sunken cities of Dwarka off the coast of Saurashtra in India and Atlantis 
the lost continent in the Aegean, came to mind. Little was known of Cleopatra's palace until the 1990s when a French archaeologist uncovered the secrets of the sunken palace, statues, ornate carvings, and the remains of a series of gigantic columns. Diving among the historic relics, imagining the presence of Cleopatra around you underwater would be a totally unique experience on par with the wonders of landing on the moon. Probably a lot more romantic, but that is too adventurous for my timid soul. I prefer to wait for the high-tech underwater museum that the Egyptian government is building here just for people like me. Moroccan Ibn Battuta was the first person in the world who traveled for pleasure. Before him, people went from one place to the other only for a purpose, like war or trade. He is rightly the great granddaddy of the vacation business. He visited Alexandria in 1326 as a tourist. Over 30 years, he traveled to most of the Islamic world and many non-Muslim lands, including Central and Southeast Asia, India and China. Near the end of his life, he dictated an account of his journeys. It was titled, A Gift to Those Who Contemplate the Wonders of Cities and the Marvels of Traveling. That is me. How I would have loved to meet this first globetrotter. It was lunchtime. Too much history on an empty stomach is never good for your health. Mahmud took us to one of the most popular seafood restaurants in Alexandria. It was called, what else, Fish Market. It was right on the water in the shadows of the citadel, offering great views of the Mediterranean and an incredible variety of seafood. I had grilled rouget, seasoned prawns, crisp beet cucumber salad, garlic tahini, and of course, hot Egyptian bread, all washed down with a house specialty, lemonade with ginger and coriander. The rouget, a relatively small redfish, is a Mediterranean favorite with a flavor that is well complemented by the region's aromatic spices. Fried, grilled, or baked, it is a highly coveted delicacy of the region dating back to the Roman era. Fully satiated now, I was really ready for the highlight, the new library called Biblioteca de Alexandria or simply BA. It is the reincarnation of the historic Great Library of Alexandria. The original Great Library was one of the largest and most significant book collections of the ancient world. It was part of a larger research institution dedicated to the muses, the nine goddesses of the arts. The idea was proposed by Demetrius, an Athenian living in Alexandria, and was built by Ptolemy II around 270 BC. The library had the largest collection of papyrus scrolls, estimated to be equivalent to about 100,000 books. Alexandria was the world's capital of knowledge and learning. Many important and influential scholars worked at the library during the 3rd and 2nd centuries before Christ, standardizing the texts and the Homeric poems, developing library catalogs, and calculating things like the circumference of the earth. 
Alas, as the story goes, the library was accidentally burnt by Julius Caesar during the civil war in the year 48 before Christ. What survived is said to have burned in a second fire later. What is it with libraries and fires? I remember visiting the ruins of the great library of Ephesus in Turkey. It is said that it got burned too. Of course, with papyrus and paper, there is so much combustible material in one place. What a shame it is that treasures of knowledge and records of the history of human civilization, so painstakingly collected by so many people over hundreds of years, get wiped off in a jiffy. Fortunately, the quest for knowledge continues. That is the most distinguishing mark of Homo sapiens, and therein lies their salvation. In 1974, the University of Alexandria initiated the idea of reviving the old library in an area close to where the original stood. UNESCO embraced the concept and organized an architectural design competition for a building that would be worthy of the site and its great heritage. Of the astounding 1400 entries it attracted, a Norwegian firm came up with the winner. Built at the cost of some $250 million, the new library was inaugurated in the year 2002. It is trilingual, containing books in classical Arabic, English and French, housed in a large complex of modern buildings. The main building is an architectural masterpiece. The central reading room stands beneath a high glass paneled roof tilted towards the sea like a sundial. This brilliant symbolism is not lost on anybody. It signifies the rising sun, upward movement, progress every day. That is the goal of knowledge. The front wall of the library is of distinct Aswan granite with a stupendous carving of characters from 120 different scripts. Knowledge is power, the only meaningful and lasting power, and it is a great equalizer of people because it cannot be inherited. It has to be earned. The Western world cannot sit on its laurel and take things for granted. With young people from everywhere able to access facilities like this great library, the world will be a different place in a generation. The Bibliotheca de Alexandria is a modern-day pyramid, a pyramid of knowledge. The sites of Egypt leave you awed with their vastness. Most countries have their own historical monuments and important works of art. But their context and time frames are equally important. When were they built? How? Under what conditions? When you think of Egypt, you cannot help but be stunned by what they have built and when. Reflecting on the great civilizations in human history, as a family-loving man, a thought comes to my mind. If countries were people, if countries were people, Egypt would be the muscular grandfather. India and China would be the loving and caring grandmothers. Greece would be the wise father. Italy, the college-going artistic daughter. 
and America would be the rambunctious son just entering his terrible teenage years. With all the idiosyncrasies of its individual members, this is a family dear to my heart. I would love to know what you thought of this episode. If you please, do write to me an email at danmayur at hotmail.com and if you like the episode, do share it with your friends. I believe in making these podcasts free and accessible to all. I am Dan Mayur, the executive producer and narrator. Thanks for listening.